Hello and welcome to the Imagineer Podcast, your unofficial guide to all things Disney. I'm your host, Matthew Krull, and you're listening to episode 73 of the Imagineer Podcast. In today's episode, I'm excited to share with all of you my interview with Tony Bancroft. Tony is an award-winning animator who has worked on countless films for Disney and beyond. He's perhaps best known for working on films that we know and love during the Disney Renaissance, including Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, and The Lion King. And he even co-directed Mulan, which is a topic I was, of course, very excited to chat with him about in this episode. We talk not only about his work at Disney, but his work beyond, including how he has written a book on animation and how he currently runs his own podcast with his brother, Tom, who's also a Disney animator. And even beyond that, we had a really fantastic discussion that I am so excited to share with all of you. At the end of the episode, I'll come back and share a little bit more about how you can connect with the Imagineer podcast on all your favorite social media channels and how you can help to inspire and create the future of this show. So, grab some headphones, pull up your favorite armchair, and enjoy this episode of the Imagineer Podcast. on the show today has an impressive and iconic portfolio from Disney and even beyond that. If you don't know his name, you almost definitely know his work. He started at Disney Feature Animation in the late 1980s and went on to create some iconic characters as part of what we call the Disney Renaissance, including Cogsworth, Iago, and Pumbaa. He also co-directed Mulan with Barry Cook and has since worked on movies like Stuart Little 2 and Mary Poppins Returns in addition to many others. As an award-winning director and animator, he has also written a book on animation and has hosted his own podcast with his brother since 2014. And with that, I am incredibly excited to welcome Tony Bancroft to the Imagineer podcast. Welcome to the show, Tony. Hey, thanks, Matt. It's good to be here. So great to have you. I know we've been chatting for uh, a few months, so I'm glad we were yeah. able to find the time. It, it took a while to pull this off, and I'm sorry about that. No, kind of the fine. world fell apart, too. There's that also. It sometimes takes takes that to to make schedules open up, unfortunately. I've been yeah. bi- actually busier than ever with the podcast now that I'm home all the time and making room for extra podcast episodes here and there. Right. Um, but like I said, I, I'm really excited to chat with you. I am someone who grew up mostly, I, I was born in the 80s, but grew up really in the 90s. And because of that, a lot of your work has had a, a personal impact on on my upbringing and my Disney childhood. And I know a lot is true for the listeners uh, who are listening to this episode as well. But um, before we go into talking about your Disney history, I wanted to take a step back because I know that you grew up in Orange County. Yeah. And um, that's obviously really close to Disneyland. So what was it like <laughs> growing up so close to uh, to Disneyland back in the late 60s, early 70s? And did you go well, frequently? Or, yeah. You know, uh, no, we weren't... Um... That's the weird thing is my family, we, we were fairly poor. I, w- I come from a single parent home 
with three kids. Uh, my mom had three kids and she worked all the time. So we were kind of latchkey kids. And I would say a lot of what drove uh, my twin brother, Tom and I to draw a lot at, at an early age is that we had a lot of time where we were just alone. And there was that sense of when mom comes home from her long day at work, we wanted to surprise her with one of our drawings or something. And, and we were very competitive about that. So Tom and I would, would draw, draw, draw. And then when, when we heard the, the door opening, we'd rush our mom and say, mom, mom, which one's better? Which one's better? You know, and <laughs> of course she would never choose. Uh, but I knew she loved mine best. Thanks mom. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, we didn't have a lot of money, so we, we couldn't get to D Disneyland uh, too often. It was a special occasion when we got to Disneyland, but it was cool that it seemed so close. Although when you're a child in the backseat of a car, you know, even a 30 minute drive could feel like forever when you're looking forward to going to Disneyland. Um, but I do have some very special memories of going to Disneyland as a child. It's, there just wasn't a lot of them. And it wasn't until I started working at Disney that um, I started taking my kids to Orlando, uh, Florida, Disneyland and uh, Disney World and then and then Disneyland out here for a short time. And then um, <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say I haven't been to Disneyland, oh my gosh, in probably five years. <laughs> it's that's, been a while. That's, that's not a, a totally unique thing, believe it or not. I even interviewed Bob Gurr, who's one of the original Imagineers who worked with Walt and still lives yeah. in LA. And he hasn't been to Disneyland since I think he said 2015. So about the same amount of time. Yeah. <laughs> so even yeah. someone who built the attractions there hasn't been there in several years. Well, it's, it's kind of, I, I, and I kind of get that from Bob's standpoint too. Um, you know, I don't have the connection that he has obviously yeah. to the park since he helped create and invent a lot of the rides. And that was, you know, where he worked. Um, for me, though, uh, on the other side of it, you know, I did work on a lot of the animated features, but I don't go back. People ask me all the time, oh, oh, you probably watch a lot of your movies. I'm like, no, I, I don't. I mean, unless I get, um, you know, asked to speak at some festival and they're showing Mulan or something and I'll sit through it um, and then comment afterwards, do a Q&A or something. That'll be like the only time I watch. I don't sit around watching these movies. I I lived them while I made them and I've moved on, you know, and I feel like I'm sure that's how Bob feels. It's like, it is kind of surreal talking about the past, you know, over and over and over and over again, but I certainly don't have to by myself sit here and relive it. People ask me to do it enough as it is. That's very true. Yeah. When you're asked to be on episodes like this one and, and to retell the stories, it's, it's, uh, it is like reliving it that way. Yeah. Which, um, and, and don't, and don't get me wrong, Matt. Yeah. I mean, I, I enjoy it. I do. I, I enjoy, um, talking about my past because it was special and I didn't know how special it was back then. I don't think any of us did that worked at the parks or worked in animation. We didn't, it was a job, you know, I mean, primarily that was it. We were paying our bills. We were raising kids and families. Yeah. I was doing what I loved, but, um, there is that sense of on the other side of it. Now it's become these cultural icons. It's been, I mean, we were talking about it before we started, you know, people come up to me and say, you, you invented my childhood or you helped make my childhood. And that's surreal for me because I didn't think we were doing that at the time. I thought we were, you know, having fun, making these cool cartoons and stuff like that. And they were going to come out and that was fun. We had a rap party and a premiere and that was it, you know, and we move on to the next. That's kind of how I felt. 
That's what I love about these conversations, too, because when people think of it in such an iconic way that these people created these uh, like iconic, well-known, mm-hmm. historic films, it's easy to think that they that everybody knew it at the time that they were creating right. something so huge. And then when you hear the fact that it was just a job, it makes it more attainable to accomplish something like that in the future. And, and I, ha- I almost hate saying that because I see kind of the sparkle in people's eyes go away when I say that because they they want to think of it that it was uh, magical and anointed and almost a religious experience going to work every day at the mouse house, you know, and it was it was a company like any other. I've worked at several animation studios and yeah. they, they all rate about the same. Yeah. Um, going back to a point you mentioned earlier about drawing when you were younger with your brother, at what yeah. point did you realize you wanted to do that as a career? Um, I didn't realize at first that it was a career. And it, and that's the funny thing is that it wasn't until Tom and I, we were started out doing comic strips, um, not animation, nothing related to animation. That was like this far off, not even a dream. It was just like, that's like rocket science. There's probably some higher math involved. We, we couldn't figure out how animation was done. So when comic strips was around us, we grew up with the newspaper and reading Calvin and Hobbes and Farside and some of the classics like of that era. And, um, and also peanuts and Charles Schultz where he was, he was my first big, um, hero, I would say of, of drawing. Um, and I used to copy Snoopy and things like that. Um, and it wasn't until I started realizing who the creators were of those comic strips. And we started, and that was probably around, I would say, middle school to high school. I mean, it was kind of later, believe it or not. And then I started really going, hey, that's what I want to do. I think it was around high school that Tom and I started doing a comic strip together in our high school newspaper. And we really loved it. We really enjoyed it. They were horrible. <laughs> they were not funny and we were terrible writers, but we really just loved doing drawing the characters. And it was that love of drawing and designing characters that ultimately led us when we got into a, a city college that all of a sudden this light bulb turned on when we met a, a friend of ours uh, that was doing these clay animated little movies. And that was the start for us of animation. Yeah, interesting. It sometimes takes a little time and not everybody knows from a very young age what they want to do. It was the same thing with me. It took me until I think high school until I narrowed down a field and then even beyond that, it took until college to narrow that further to a particular career. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you went to, like you said, you went to uh, Cypress College for a couple of years and then yeah. got into the CalArts uh, Character Animation Program. What was that like? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And if it wasn't for Cyprus, which was really just a stop along the way, we were at a point where Tom and I were like, well, we want to do a comic strip. And we knew enough about it. We had done our research, going to the library and reading anything we could about comic strips. And we knew that all we had to do is create a comic strip and submit it to a syndicate. And if they like it and pick it up, man, you could be set for the rest of your life. You're making a comic strip and then you're just, you know, adding newspapers and building the following of the comic strip. Um, And we had you know, a history of, you know, um, Hank Ketchum and Charles Schultz and all these different creators who had done that. And they had just started when they were in their 20s and did this until they died, basically. And that was our goal. So it wasn't until we went to Cypress City College when we were kind of searching, like our mom, our mom really wanted us to go to take some classes, enroll in something, kind of, you know, 
figure out what we wanted to do and get some higher education learning, even if it was just in our art. So we took a cinematography class and because we always were interested in film. So we're kind of searching a little bit there and started thinking about maybe getting into commercials and stuff like that. And then um, we took an illustration class and that's when we met this guy, Eric Stefani. His, his sister was Gwen Stefani and he created the, the OC group, Orange County group, uh, No Doubt. Wow. Um, so this was early days, no doubt. He's writing music, um, and his sister had just, she was, she's like five years younger than us or something like that. So she was just this little annoying girl that was around us all the time, just, <laughs> you know, trying to see what we're doing. And we're doing this cool clay animated film together. And, um, and that's when Tom and I really got bit by the animation bug is during, I just remember being in Eric Stefani's garage and, you know, he'd always be tinkering around on his keyboard and playing songs and stuff like that. But also he was a great artist and animator. Um, and he would do these really cool, fun, little wacky bits of animation that we had seen, like only through Warner Brothers cartoons when we were younger, like Bugs Bunny kind of stuff. But he was doing it with clay. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is awesome. And we we ended up doing some, a film together that summer and uh, came out of it going, well, I, I wasn't a. Tom and I both weren't very good sculptors and weren't great with clay, but, and hated the fact that, you know, under the hot lamps, they would start to melt and, you know, you're working against gravity and stuff like that. And I thought, well, if we could do this with clay, why can't we do this with, you know, our 2D drawing, the, the drawing that we love to do, creating characters and stuff like that. And that summer is when we um, dug deep and did some investigation into where could you go to school for animation? Because we knew that we needed to learn. And that's when we found Cal Arts, Californians to the Arts, applied, got in. We had, and again, we we're a very poor family with a single parent who was just, we were just making, living, build, you know, uh, check to check pretty much. So it was the, the next challenge was how do you afford this? Cal Arts is like the most expensive school in the universe, it seemed <laughs> yeah. like, especially at the time. It still is, it's very expensive. And here, two of us wanted to go there. We got accepted and they offered us no financial aid, especially at the time they didn't have that. Um, so my mom like totally invested in us and took some 401k money or something and, and invested it into our first year. We could afford one year. We went, ended up going there for a year and a half and thankfully got picked up by Disney into an internship after a year and a half. So never finished, never got a degree, but we, we loved our time there. Yeah. How did that internship come about? Um, they were hiring specifically. It was the first time they had done some internships at Disney feature animation before that. And they, and they were just kind of warming up with it. And then they, they, they did one big internship that was hiring specifically for the Disney MGM studios in Orlando, Florida. And so they knew they needed a bunch of young, basically in-betweeners to, to fill seats at this new theme park and it was going to be an animation tour and all this kind of stuff. And I don't, you know, they just weren't thinking, well, we need, you know, grade A talent. They were thinking we, this could be great for students and an opportunity to train and all this kind of stuff, which we were like, yes, that's like free school. And here we can't afford school. So it was perfect for Tom and I. Um, and I remember Bill Matthews, who was at the time, he was the Disney recruiter and trainer. He came to CalArts. And he had gone to a bunch of schools. That was the first time they opened up in th any internship to 
more than one or two schools. And CalArts was always one that had a connection with Disney and still does. But, you know, um, so I, we knew they were going to be coming to CalArts, but they were only looking for upperclassmen. We were at that time sophomores in our first year of our sophomore year. And they were only looking for juniors and seniors. They wanted, you know, later in. And we begged Bill Matthews when he came, please let us show our portfolio. We have no money to come back. If you guys don't let us submit our portfolio, we're going to end up working at Carl's Jr. or something. I mean, that's that was next on the list was like, okay, we drop out of CalArts and we get, you know, there was no Starbucks at the time. That would have been <laughs> yeah. the other option. <laughs> but it was like Carl's Jr. or McDonald's or something like that. And so uh, they thankfully allowed us, knowing that we were not going to return because that was the deal they had with CalArts. I think Disney made a deal like, okay, well, we'll look at upperclassmen because we don't want to you know, pillage all your students by taking them into an internship. You know, So they wanted people that were, were going to be graduating or getting out of college anyway. But we were like, well, we're not coming back to college. So we're in the same boat. So we showed our portfolio and Bill um, thankfully accepted both of us because I don't know what we would have done if only one of us was chosen. Yeah. Um, and um, we both got into the internship that started right after that. That's amazing. It's when everything is really on the line that uh, I feel like when the pressure's on, there's a little fire that gets lit over right? you and, and you yeah. make things happen when, when things when things are, are getting rough. Um how did you then turn that into a full-time gig? Um, I'm sure there's a lot of people who want to work for Disney in animation. So how I, I know that's a yeah. foot in the door. I mean, how did you then turn that into a full-time position? Well, we were, I mean, I think a lot of people would say that we were at the right place at the right time for sure. Um, and being a Christian myself, I really feel like, you know, God had a bigger plan for Tom and I in that, in that moment, in that timing, because there was there was a big opportunity that had just opened up that internship like i said was hiring they needed to get like 20 seats filled at this new disney mgm studios opportunity was there um so we our timing was just right for that opportunity and then on top of it um we're at cal arts which was a school that they really loved and you know they wanted to get more people from cal arts so that was working for us and then we worked our butts off with our portfolio and and got and got those spots um but yeah it was i don't i guess i forgot the rest of your question was it <laughs> yeah, yeah just how you how you made that into a full-time position so it sounds like a lot oh, yeah. of hard work <laughs> oh it was and um you know so basically we had to go through the internship at, in la at the burbank facility we did it was a nine-week internship and then they picked kind of the best of the best to go into a full-time job as a, a new in-betweener, you know, lowest of the lowest rung on the animation um, uh, job status. Um, and uh, I think out of the 20 or 22 that we had in the internship, they did they did pick quite a few. I think it was something like 17 or something, 16 or 17 were chosen to go to Orlando, Florida, and Tom and I were amongst those. Um, and we were thrilled. They did pick like five, I think, stayed in Burbank. Most people got jobs. Five stayed in Burbank uh, because they didn't want to go to Florida and they still wanted to hire them. So they gave them jobs in the, uh, the, the Burbank studio. And then um, the rest were let go. There, so there were some that were just not good enough and didn't make it even after the nine weeks uh, internship. But Tom and I were, I remember being probably the most stressed I've ever been in my life Yeah. when I was sitting out of the office of 
I think it was probably Bill Matthews office actually at, at the Burbank um, Disney studios. And we were being called in one by one and told if we got the, uh, if we got the job in Florida. And I think, I think I went in first before Tom and I was so happy when I got the job, but then my next anxiety was, Oh my gosh, what if Tom, I had never considered what if my brother didn't get it also. And, that was that was almost as agonizing as as me getting it because I really could not see going down there without Tom. We were Tom and I were not only twin brothers but best friends, and yeah. we inspired each other. We pushed each other. You know, we loved and appreciated animation the same way. We had the same passions, so I, I couldn't see going with him. And then thankfully, he went in. And they, I, or maybe I could be confusing it. Maybe it was the other way around and he got, he got asked first <laughs> and then that put a pressure on me. And I was really, uh, you know, could not imagine not going with them. So I think that might've been actually how it went. So one of these days I'll get this story down, but there was that anxiety. I remember of just being totally stressed out. And then once they said, oh yeah, we like both you guys, you're in too. Of course we're going to take both you guys. And I was just like, ah, oh. <laughs> such a relief. Oh, it was, it was, you know, I, I tell people it was probably, you know, second, third to getting married, you know, falling in love, getting married and having kids was that first you're hired at Disney studios. That was awesome. Yeah. It's like I said, a lot of people wants to be in a lot of people who aspire to be animators one day want to work for Disney. Not everybody, but a lot of people do. So yeah, it's a, sure. a tough position, um, a competitive position to get and very rewarding Especially in your case, I feel like it's it's extra rewarding to know yeah. that you had that uh, almost apprenticeship in in Disney of all places. Um, it really was, yeah. So your first, if I'm not mistaken, your first character. So as a cleanup artist, you worked on, I believe, Roger Rabbit, and then you later did Frank from Rescuers Down Under. Um, what was that learning process like? Do you find it to be different than working learning in Cal Arts, or you know, what were some of the differences there? Yeah, I. Um... Uh, I, there was a lot of stuff I didn't know because we didn't go f through the whole four years at CalArts. Right. And I was ultra nervous about what is that going to mean? We were, Tom and I were trained as, like I said, comic book artists, illustrators. We could draw, we could ink, we could do cleanup because that was very close to being like an inker of doing comic strips. So we felt confident in, in that kind of stuff. And we had learned enough in our internship of how to in between even how to animate and create layouts and things like that. We, it was a great internship, um, but there was so much more that we had never done and we'd never been part of a production. Now, when the Orlando studio first opened, it was purely uh, a tour and we were going to be productive. We were actually going to make things, but it was not part of the Disney canon of features at first. We were told and given the, the promise and commitment that you guys are going to be a shorts division and you guys are going to make animated shorts and, you know, that way they're, they're a loss leader. They don't have to make money, but we'll put them. You're basically being paid because the park is making money because you're here and people are drawn to just, you know, come in and watch you guys draw. So I'm like, oh, OK. And we were happy doing that. We thought this is great training ground. And in the grand tradition of Disney, that's how a lot of people came up as animators and directors and stuff was through the shorts program that they had in the 50s and 60s. And so we thought, well, this is kind of neat. It's like kind of bringing back that training um, that Walt had started through the shorts earlier on. And we were going to do Mickey shorts and uh, Roger Rabbit 
the feature had already come out. So we weren't working on the anime, uh, the who frame Roger rabbit feature, but they had a, lined up a series of shorts and one of them came out with like, you know, honey, I shrunk the kids. I think Tommy trouble did. And we got, um, put on, um, roller coaster rabbit. That was the very first production that was produced there at the Flor- Orlando, Florida studio. And, um, it was, we had a ball. Um, Rob Minkoff was the director who later became one of the directors on Lion King. And, you know, I'll get to that later, but he was a big influence on me becoming, um, not only a supervising animator on Lion King, but also later a director on Mulan. Um, but, um, it was a great training ground for us. Um, and there was just a lot of things that I didn't know. And let, Later on, once we did, they, they basically discovered that, okay, maybe just doing shorts isn't going to be good enough. And the, and the animation was booming. It was starting to grow. You know, Little Mermaid came out, made a lot of money. All of a sudden, the studio started turning attention to animation like never before and going, wow, this is really kind of blowing up and becoming big for us. And so we need to start producing more and we need more, you know. Um, so what are we doing with these florida studio artists i mean they're doing good work why can't they work on the features so we started helping out the burbank studio so uh, rescuers down under was the first one where we um and we had like some superior some great animators from the burbank studio that had come to orlando like um uh, barry temple and mark han and you know some of these guys that were they were on par with the a team that was in burbank and we were always considered the b team in orlando but these guys were really quality, especially Mark Ken. He was, he was a king, you know, he was one of the best in the industry and always has been, but he just liked the idea of being kind of the big fish in a small pond. I think for Mark, it was more about getting out of the shadow of Glenn Keane, who was kind of the, the big rock star in Burbank. Yeah. So anyway, um, that's just a little side story. Yeah, that's <laughs> um, great. <laughs> um, you know, but um, so Tom and I grew up under Mark Hen, and he really became our mentor while we were in Orlando, Florida, and became very close to him. He became kind of a, a second father figure to us. And we talk about that quite a bit on our podcast, what a mentor he was and a father figure. Um, and uh, I don't know where I was going with that. Oh, but when Rescuers Down Under came up there, the studio decided to give an opportunity for all of us in betweeners. They wanted to have one uh they wanted to show some promotion and growth because we were kind of in that animating assistant or um sorry assistant animator cleanup job for a long time by that point and so they they opened up the orlando studio had room for one new animator kind of an animating assistant or a trainee animator and all of us young guys had to do tests to prove ourselves to try and win over the review board which was like glenn Keane and mark Hen and People in Burbank had to see the work, and people in Florida had to see the work. Um, so we did these tests, and it was of Joanna the Lizard from Rescuers Down Under, because that's what we were started to work on. Right. Um, and we did these tests, and um, that one position, I heard I was number two. I think Tom was number three, but Aaron Blaze got it. He was the number one pick, and um, and I hate him for it. But <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I love Aaron. Actually, we're good friends. But um, yeah, he got that job, and. I was like, ah, I wanted it. I wanted to animate by that point so badly that I said, well, and I had a girlfriend who's now my wife, but she was in Southern California still. So we were dating long distance this whole time. So I had this heart pull to go back to Burbank. 
So I said, please put my Joanna test up for opportunities in the Burbank studio. And they, they had the same anime and assistant program going, but they were looking for three openings instead of one in Florida. So I had more, the odds were forever, forever in my favor. So I, I put my, my, my Joanna test in for that and I got a position. And so I started rescuers down under in Orlando, Florida as a cleanup artist. I finished rescuers down under as a, a new trainee animator in Burbank. So that all happened during that duration of that film. Yeah, I love how that worked out too with uh, your girlfriend now wife being in 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 uh, California. So it gives you more of an incentive to try to get back there. My wife and I yeah. did long distance for a while too, so I understand how tough that can be. It is. A, it sucks. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Um, but uh, the other thing I love, kind of like as we're piecing this together, looking at your your portfolio, is this this upward slope in your resume of moving from a cleanup artist to sort of an assistant animator to an animator to a supervising animator to a director, and then you know going yeah. on from there. And obviously, you're taking all these lessons and and building upon them, um, which I'm certainly going to ask about later and ask about The Lion King because that happens to be my favorite Disney movie. But as mm. we're looking now into the the '90s. Um, you know, sort of rather than going movie by movie, thinking about the movies you did work on, like Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin and and The Lion King and uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame, all these these iconic movies from the from the Disney Renaissance. Um, what sort of was that? Um, I guess process like for you, or what did you learn or take away from those experiences? As a whole, I guess separate from the Lion King, that's that's uh, that helped you to continue to build as an animator. Well, I really looked at it, and so did my brother Tom too. But um, for me, being now in Burbank, and this is the first time Tom and I are separated. So now I'm in the Burbank studio, working with you know a lot of the A team animators that were were the stars of that time, and which was a great opportunity for me. Tom stayed back in Florida because he he loved the studio there and and contributed. To really all the same movies but we were working on together but just three thousand miles apart so we were calling each other all the time and things like that and he got really jealous i would we were very competitive even at that time so <laughs> i'd always be telling him yeah i'm working with this i have a scene with glenn Keane, and he did the roughs of beasts and beauty and the beast and i'm i'm doing the objects you know so and i had these like I had this scene where we call it booger animation because the objects were as small as like little boogers on the page. <laughs> um, and I was doing them running after the beast. And, you know, Glenn had done this like majestic beast, like lunging up the stairs, going up to the West Wing. And he's all angry and stuff. And then they're like, wait, wait, sir, <laughs> sir, you know, running after him. That was one of my first scenes on Beauty and the Beast. Um, but, you know, Tom was just like so jealous. But it was a great time of growth. I think. Um, you know, both Tom and I saw this as an opportunity. Those early 90s films were, to me, always about learning and growing. I felt like I was a student uh, still. You know, I, I had graduated. I hadn't graduated, but I, I left CalArts to go into a new school is how I saw it. Only this one was going to pay me instead of creating great debt. Yeah. So to me, it was the best of all worlds. And it really was. I we used to go to, uh, um, I became really good friends, like Mike Surrey was one of my good buddies, and Brian Ferguson, and Nick Ranieri, and we used to hang out, and we and it was always about learning and growing. We would talk about animation all the time. We were just obsessed with trying to get to the root of how do you become better? How do you become 
what we saw as the greats, you know, the, the nine old men, the, the shoulders that we stood on of, of the great uh, artists of the past. We wanted to not only learn from who's there right with us, and I had a great mentor in Will Finn, who was a great comedy uh, animator, and I learned a lot about comedy from him, but also, you know, Glenn Keane, and then also going to the Animation Research Library, where we were able to go through the what we called the morgue at the time, and we used to check out scenes and flip through Frank and Ollie work and milk call scenes and things like that. And just, I still have a bunch of Xeroxes of, of classic Disney films of scenes with X sheets. And, and I love just rolling through them and it's an education in itself. So even though they're not, they weren't there at the studio when I was there, I still feel like I learned from um, the nine old men in a lot of ways, just from, their level of work being there um, and provided for us, which was really awesome. So we, we did, we took opportunities to, to learn and grow. And I remember, but some of it was growing while we were making these films. I mean, I, I made a lot of mistakes. I still look back at some of my work on, Oh gosh, rescuers down under and beauty and the beast. And I'm, and I, I kind of cringe. There's things that I know I, I learned after that, that I could have, if I would have known, or if I could have, if I just had more experience, but that happens in everybody's life. There's there's not one person out there that isn't growing and learning and have regrets about things that you know you could do better now. So I, you know, all the films. That's going back to why I, I don't necessarily watch all those old films. Is that you know some of them are a little hard for me to look at. I still think of, oh, I could have done that, or this is it wasn't really good enough, or I should have done you know, and it's those shoulda woulda couldas. I think that that causes me to not look back at those films as much sometimes. Although I, I am very proud of them, obviously. But yeah, the growth was tremendous during the 90s for me, learning and growing. I remember the first um, uh, the first time I got issued a scene that had dialogue in it was on Rescuers Down Under. It was a Frank the Fril Frilled Neck Lizard. And I remember going in and meeting with the directors and they're issuing me the scene. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is like a close-up scene of Frank. And he's going, wood, wood, all I got to do is get the wood. And, um, and my mentor animator and supervising animator, Will Finn, was there. And he's like, oh yeah, 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 I want Tony to do this. And this will be great. And I'm like, inside, I'm just like getting anxious and going, oh my gosh, it's got lipstick, it's got dialogue. And because I knew what they didn't know, I had never told them, but I, I left CalArts before I ever animated any dialogue. I had never learned lip sync or any of that. And so I was, I left the room and I, I quickly turned to Will and said, you got to help me out. I don't know how to animate dialogue. And, and here I'm on production doing a scene, a close-up scene of a character, and I had never animated dialogue before. So Will, thankfully, spent a couple hours with me in his office and oh just do this and here's some lips uh you know lip shape suggestions for this and that and this is what an x sheet is i mean he i'd never even worked with an x sheet before an exposure sheet and which breaks down all the dialogue frame by frame and he quickly kind of made a lesson out of it all and i went back to my my little cubicle and whittled through that scene um but yeah i mean i i look at it and i'm i put a lot of work into those things but i still think oh man it was just so much i didn't know you know that came later as a kid i can tell you that uh which uh, you know i'm sure if an animator were to look at it and pick it apart they'd find they'd find the, yeah. the shortcomings but as a kid watching rescuers down under which my sister and i happen to watch a lot we never were thinking about the you know, if the dialogue was off like everything to us worked looked perfect um which of course is uh is just sort of the 
the life of animation, bringing bringing these characters to life. Um, when it comes to the characters you worked on, like uh, Iago and, and Chief Powhatan and uh, Kala from Tarzan, did you have any sort of input into the characters themselves, or was your role focused on the animation of the characters alone? Uh, well, first, I didn't. I don't know where you got your uh, IMDb page, but I didn't work on Chief. I didn't work on Pocahontas at all. Oh well, then that's totally wrong. So My apologies. I didn't. I didn't work on Chief Powhatan or whatever it is. And did you mention some? I think Tarzan, but I could be wrong about Tarzan. I didn't work too. on Tarzan. Okay. Well, then forget and those. My brother, two. my brother worked on both those that films. That might be so why. Okay. That could be the confusion. Is um, but Tom worked on Pocahontas and Pocahontas, and on Tarzan he worked on um, some of the elephants. I think it was. Um, but yeah, uh, but I did work on the other ones. Um, and so the question is, what was it about? Um, uh, yeah, having input into the characters themselves in any way. Oh sure. Um, I mean, at that time you're when you're working with a supervising animator and you're underneath the supervising animator, they are kind of like your mentor. They are, they're the ones that assign you the scenes, basically like Will Finn, who was my supervising animator on beauty and the beast on Cogsworth, Yago on Aladdin. Oh, and also going back a little bit, Frank on, on, um, rescuers down under. So I worked with them on three films as, as my supervising animator. And, the great thing about Will compared to some other supervising animators at the time, because I would hear from the other animating assistants and junior animators like, man, my supervising animator never gives me any good scenes. I never get any dialogue or close up <laughs> scenes. And, you know, and as a junior animator, that's like you want those things to kind of prove yourself. I want the good acting scenes. Right. Um, and you're always kind of vying for that. Um, but Will was really generous to me. Without me even asking for it, he would just like give me great opportunities. So on Beauty and the Beast, um, he you know he gave me like a full sequence with Cogsworth, like where I was doing continuity now of shots together of Cogsworth, and then the same even more so on on uh, Aladdin with Iago. He gave me full sequences to do, and and that way I felt like I was really contributing to the character in a bigger way. So. I don't think that's normal at my age and my, you know, where I was status wise or experience wise, that was not normal. I mean, he really just threw me in like into the pool and said, swim. And, <laughs> and then it was kind of up to me to kind of go into myself and find that, okay, I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to dig, dig deep. I'm going to make this work. I'm not going to shrivel up and die. I'm going to make this work and I'm going to swim. And, um, it was because of that that and those opportunities that he gave me that I grew as an actor, as a performer. I understood, I started to understand what it was to make a scene work, what it was to create a character and give it life and personality. Unlike any of the other, you know, junior animators my age and experience level, probably because because Will gave me those opportunities. So when I think of opportunity, I think of my mentor and supervising animator, Will Finn. He, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have transitioned onto the Lion King as a supervising animator. I wouldn't have been one of the youngest uh, <coughs> animators. <coughs> Excuse me. I wouldn't have been one of the youngest animators on uh, Lion King that was supervising a character, or, or later, um, the youngest Disney director on Mulan. It, it just kind of jettisoned me forward. Yeah, it's it's uh, it, it it does take certainly. Um, people to give you, um, in some cases, uh, 
a, a great deal of trust or, or yeah. you know, the opportunity to try something out of your comfort zone. And that, that is how we grow. Um, so since you brought up The Lion King, what was it like working on that, uh, that film as a supervising animator? Because I feel like that you hear tales of The Lion King and development and the and of course of course some of the energy is is sort of uh amplified in promotional material but you know yeah. what was it like to work on the lion king it was it was kind of everything that you see in the promotional material actually i mean it was a magical time we were at a certain peak and a, and a later peak would come because of the lion king that we didn't predict of course right but um all of our films were making more and more money and, it, and opportunities were opening up. And Jeffrey Katzenberg, who is then the head of the studio, is like, if I can make this much money with one film, I can make double as much with two films. So let's start, <laughs> you know, and that that's when he got ambitious about let's try and make two films a year. I don't think we ever achieved that, but that was the goal. And so to do that, we had to separate our one animation unit that was kind of just moving from film to film to film into two. And the a team really for the most part went on to pocahontas which was a little bit ahead of lion king at that time so that became that was going to be the next film out and so glenn Keane and all you know some you know duncan major banks and all these like um really superstar kind of animators that had done a lot on little mermaid and, and beauty and the beast and things like that they moved on to pocahontas and then it opened up opportunity the studio had to turn around and go okay who's the next next in line who's the next up for that could possibly take on supervising animators heads of department kind of those positions on this new film king of the jungle which is what it was called when we first came onto it and um that's where myself and mike surrey and i mean almost a hundred percent of the supervising animators not a hundred percent but almost um, of the supervising animators heads of departments even the directors were all first timers we had never done those jobs before but that's what also made it exciting was um, I think we all felt like we had a chip on our shoulder of like we wanted to prove ourselves. And now we got this. This was a huge opportunity. And I think we all knew it. We all knew that Lion King. We didn't know that Lion King was going to be popular. We didn't know that it was, you know, oh, the greatest story of all time. And actually, it wasn't when we first came on. It had to go <laughs> through all of its, you know, teenage years and awkward pimply stage before it became you know the the swan that it became later on but um we but we did know that it was a great opportunity for us and we did know there was a lot of great material there and as the songs were being recorded and we heard them play even in the scratch demo versions we're like okay this is this is cool this is and it's different and this is good yeah and and it just kind of kept going that way where we just got more more and more deeper involved with the story more and more deeper excited by the story and what we were doing um and everybody was just all in you know it was it was awesome that is incredible um yeah i feel like especially so if i'm not mistaken um and, and given by some of the things i see even in your office uh pumbaa was one of the characters <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> that you worked on there yeah i thought um they 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 didn't the the new directors uh, Roger Allers and Rob Minkoff didn't really know a lot of the younger talent. So when we started on the film, they asked all of us to create VHS videotapes of our work up until that point. So we had to go through and kind of pick our favorite scenes. So we're kind of reestablishing 
reshowing a portfolio. And I feel like this is part of the artist's life is that you're always kind of kind of reproving yourself constantly. So we had to pull all this stuff together. And I remember, you know, when I, I wrote a note on my my tape that I sent out to the directors and said, because um, I knew they were looking for supervising animators. And I knew that me and Mike and our group, we were we were the ones they were looking at. That's why they were asking for videotapes from us. And so but I thought I, I need to make sure they're clear that I can, you know, I'm just looking for entry level. So I wrote on there, I did just animate Yago, the parrot on <laughs> Aladdin. So I hear there's a character named Zazu talking, you know, talking bird. I've done talking bird before. So maybe you can consider me for Zazu. What I didn't know is that they had dug deeper and talked to producers on Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast and, um, they really liked the combo of Mike and I. We were Mike and I were really good friends at that point. We shared offices together on Beauty and the Beast. He did Lumiere. I did Cogsworth. We were used to working together on scenes together. We had a great uh, camaraderie and um, friendship, and just uh, you know, we were the ones that were laughing and goofing in the hallways, you know. And people saw that, you know. We were like, we were the buddies and um, and kind of the funny guys too, good with comedy and things like that. So the directors, and, and like I said, going back to way back when I first started my story, Rob Minkoff knew that I wanted to be an animator. And, and Rob Minkoff really took a shining to me early on in my career in Orlando, Florida, when I worked with him on his first directing debut, that roller coaster rabbit, Roger Rabbit short. Right. So he had me in, in mind for something more than I thought. And, and also Mike, too. So uh, when I got the call, that was the second biggest day in my life at Disney was when I got the call um, from the producers saying, Rob and Roger would like you to do Pumbaa the Warthog and Mike Suri is going to do Timon um, in the movie. And I thought it blew my mind because those were the two characters that stood out even back in the early animatics when we were being shown king of the jungle early on those were the two comedy standouts those were the you know everybody wanted those characters right. they were the ones that people were lining up for and i thought i had no chance i didn't even ask for pumbaa or timon and, and, and timon was definitely the one that stood out the most but um i had no i had no thinking in, in the realm of possibilities that i might be considered for one of those two you know bright light characters in the movie that's why I was like, I'll be happy just to do Zazu, and that would be fun. <laughs> and when they when they called, I mean, I almost fainted. I almost I was so excited, and uh, it was just you know the limitless possibilities of what was going to come from that just hit me all at the same time, and and also the the unique pressure and anxiety of it all hit me at the same time too. It was a combination of good and bad and scary and freaking out that. I, I almost fainted when they told me. Yeah, that's uh, that's incredible, and it is. Pumbaa is definitely one of the. I feel like it, it's definitely a fan favorite with a lot of a lot of kids, a lot of adults too. Um, yeah, his personality is is so um, like innocent and youthful and and funny. Like you said, he's definitely got uh, some funny moments in the film. Uh, we could probably chat all day about the Lion King, but the the one the one film that I know you know was to a step up point from even that was uh, co-directing Mulan, and um, you know how how did that opportunity come about? Was it with the help of Rob Minkoff, sort of helping to 
bring you into the forefront once again, or was there a totally different way that you came into directing that film? Yeah, it, it really was. I mean, I do give uh, Rob the, the credit for igniting that idea with the um, development executives that ultimately had the choice to make because they, they had gone through a lot of people. I was not the first choice. Uh, so Barry Cook was the first director on the film. He was already in Orlando, Florida. Mulan was deemed already and chosen to be uh, Orlando, Florida's first animated feature that was going to be produced solely in, in Florida by that studio. And of course, by this time, I started at the Florida studio, worked there for about, I don't know, a year and a half, two years, and now had worked almost four, four years in the Burbank studio. <clears throat> um, but <clears throat> they remembered that I was part of that original team. And so when they started looking for a co-director to work with Barry, who was already on it, they wanted somebody that was one willing to go to Florida, obviously, and live there for a long time. And they had a hard time finding some of their first choices turned it down because it was Orlando, Florida. Um, but I was young, just newly married. And um, it was Rob Minkoff actually that was, I heard the story later on that he was walking out to the parking garage after, you know, it was a Friday night after the work week. And he's happened to be walking down to the elevator and stuff with Tom Schumacher, who was then the vice president of development. And Tom turned to Rob and said, we got this movie Mulan. It's starting up in Florida. We're looking for a co-director. We've gone through several different people. We're looking for an out-of-the-box idea. Do you have somebody? Who do you think could be a co-director there? <clears throat> and Rob said, Tony Bancroft. You know, he told me years ago, and I did. We had a conversation when I was an in-betweener on Roller Coaster Rabbit five years before. We had a conversation, and he asked me, and this was late one night. We were, I was working on doing an animation test, and he knew that I was ambitious and learning and growing, and he liked that about me. And he said, well, what do you see yourself doing in five years? I mean, like, or ultimately, let's not even five years, just like ultimately at Disney. And I said, I want to be a director like you. I want to I experience what it is to create a movie from start to finish and wow. unfold a story to an audience. I want to... I want to do that. And he had just started doing that. And I think that really cemented in his mind. So here we go. Fast forward to a, a conversation while he's walking out into the parking lot, leaving for the day with Tom Schumacher. And he throws out my name because he remembered that story from five years before. And to me, that's a great example of why we put things out there, why we talk, we tell people about our dreams and our hopes and things is that you never know how that's going to come back around. And for me, it, it played itself out in Rob Minkoff remembering what a little kid's dreams and aspirations were when they first started at Disney. And he suggested me and, and hoping that maybe he can help fulfill that. And, it, and he did, because ultimately that, that executive said, huh, okay, we hadn't thought about Tony. Okay, hmm, yeah, yeah, I see how that could, okay, well, hmm. And I had just come off of Lion King, a lot of success on, on Pumbaa, and I was already starting to work on Hunchback of Notre Dame when that executive gave me a call and said, hey, we'd like for you to consider being a co-director and on Mulan. And I knew about it already because my brother, my twin brother, Tom, was still in Florida. He had already been working in it in development for like six months, eight months. And so he was calling me all the time and talking to me about this movie, Legend of Mulan or Legend of Wa Mulan, which it was called back then. Right. And and I was like, huh, OK. So I knew I knew more than most people did about that Florida studio project. Yeah. And uh, and then when I was asked to direct it, of course, my first thought was, I'm going to be my brother's boss. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> which was which was a fun thing for yeah. me. Maybe not for him, but yeah. Um, so then, I mean, what was it like to be your brother's boss, jokingly, but also seriously? <laughs> I guess my bigger question is, what was it like to direct that film with Barry? And uh, I guess, what were some of the... I know there's a lot of differences in directing a film as opposed to being a supervising animator or an animator, but what was the process like for you to direct that movie? Well, uh, uh, similarly, and even more so than getting the position of uh, being a supervising animator on Lion King doing Pumbaa, there was that excitement and horror at the same time. Like I am instantly thought about all the things that I don't know about directing an animated feature for Disney. That was the thing that weighed on me the most. Uh, It was exciting to have that opportunity in theory, but whenever I thought about it practically, I thought, how am I going to do this? I don't, there's so much I don't know. And there's no training ground for it. This is the reason I wrote the book that I wrote later on, uh, directing for animation, which is available on Amazon.com, yep. <laughs> um, uh, is because I feel like I learned so much from that journey and I grew so much from that journey. But a lot of it was from making hard mistakes and, and having failures um, and getting up and continuing on or admitting when I was wrong or things like that that I had to go through in directing Mulan. Mulan was one of the the best experiences and worst experiences in my career at Disney. There was, it was just literally a roller coaster. There were some days that it was, I felt really up and I was contributing. I felt like I was helping to drive this big machine of the story of Mulan. And I was passionate about it and loved it. And then there was days where I just felt like I'm just getting in the way of these really talented artists, you know, doing what they, I'm just an a, a prover, like a stamp, you know, okay, go to the next you know, stage, go to the next stage. And I just, like I just had a chop and I was just approving model sheets and doing this <laughs> and that. And I didn't feel like I was as creatively involved. Even when I was an animator, I thought, you know, my brother's having a better time on this film and, you know, sitting in his room drawing Mushu all the time because he became the supervisor and animator of Mushu and, um, than I was having. And I was going to meetings and going to, you know, every single moment of my day was a scheduled event, you know, where I had to even just sneak away to go to the bathroom it was crazy. So um, it was a lot of changes for me. Um, when I look back, it's all fond memories. But I remember being in the moment, just being, you know, um, just having to put on a real, you know, uh, confident face when there was a lot of turmoil and unconfidence inside of me. Um, uh, and and yet it was probably the best thing that could have happened to me because I stretched and I grew more than I ever have on that movie. And there's so much that I'm proud of about what we did on that movie. And just to be able to look back on it now is it's phenomenal. It's one of the things that I'm most proud of in my career. But going back to your question specifically about working with my brother, you know, for me, it was easier. I think the onus was really on his shoulders because there was times I I didn't have a lot of friends. You know, now I'm back in the Orlando, Florida studio. I've been gone for several years. There's a lot of close, you know, kinships and stuff. All the guys that I was a junior animator with now are supervising animators online or on or, or became some on Lion King and then also on definitely on Mulan. And I'm their boss. So it's hard to now be buddy buddy when you're everybody's boss. Right. So my brother was always my brother. So I felt like, okay, uh, I can still hang out with him. And we were always, you know, brothers and friends. So I had almost every lunch with Tom. Um, and we would just, you know, close the door in my office and sit and watch 
cartoons or, you know, watch movies or something like that on VHS tape or um, just anything to kind of get away from the production. And it was just us being brothers, you know. Um, But then he had to when we when we left that room at lunchtime and we went into an animation meeting, he had to kind of go, okay, now my brother's talking to me as my boss, as my director. So there was a lot he had to do, I think, because I would just switch, you know, I would just go from being jokey, jokey, brother kind of thing, talking about family business and whatever to, okay, now on this scene, you need to do this, this and this. And he would have to make that switch going, okay, I, I really need to, you know, I, I need to accept this as now this is my boss talking to me. And I think he did an excellent job. I really, I really do. I look, I look at Tom as the reason why that worked for us. Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic. I know family members who have worked together before, and it can be, uh, even as equals, challenging. And to have a relationship where your brother's reporting to you, essentially, can be be challenging. But it sounds like you both navigated it really well. Um, So you mentioned your book, Directing for Animation. Um, What was your inspiration to write that? Well, the, the, you know, the, the, the leader line underneath the title, kind of the subtitle to it is everything you didn't learn in art school. Mm-hmm. And that's really what it was about. For me, I felt like I came into directing at a big corporate studio, a big budget film, and there was no training ground. Nobody ever, you know, I never ghosted another director for like months and months or anything like that. It was just hey, we'd like for you to direct this movie. Uh, okay, yeah, great. Okay, go. Just go and do it now. <laughs> and I felt so equ- unequipped. And I felt, because up until that point, and this is why I think there's not a training ground for it, is that up until that point, it took like 20 years. You know, it was kind of a known thing. If you wanted to direct at Disney or any of these big studios, there was a path and you had to go from point A to point Z stepping and growing and learning and proving yourself constantly before you got that opportunity. I had gotten there in five years and it was unprecedented, unprecedented for me, for, for the studio and the studio didn't put any thought into it. I just became a director in the ranks. And at that point they had three different, four different productions going on at the same time. There was no consideration of, Hey, this, this kid might need some training in this. Um, I was just kind of thrown into the the deep water all of a sudden. So when I came out of that and grew so much, and and it was hard, and I and I will admit I barely survived that in a lot of ways. I think there was times where they were probably considering firing me or taking taking me off that film. Um, and, and I and that happens a lot in Hollywood. I mean, we hear about directors being pulled off of things all the time, right? right. There's creative differences. There's a lot of different reasons, but you know, in the, in my darkest hour on Mulan, I thought that I was going to lose that that job, and I'm just thankful that I hung in there. Again, it's just the tenacity and um, you know the wherewithal that I got from my mom early on, because she was that kind of independent, strong-willed person that that kept me in there. But um, everything I learned coming out of that process, I infused into that book, and and I cite a lot of Mulan examples in that book too. So. For those that like to that, that do aspire to be a director in animation, especially in feature animation, but also maybe Disney enthusiasts that want to know a little bit behind the scenes of making of a movie, it's in there. 
Well, I'll obviously be plugging the book on all my channels and certainly in this podcast episode. So anyone who's listening, who's like, I need to order that, just go into the, the show notes. You'll find it there. Um, I, I know that, you know, we're, I want to talk a little bit about your career outside of Disney um, and then some of the things you've been doing since. Uh, can you give us some of the highlights of some of the films you worked on outside of, of uh, the Disney umbrella? Yeah, I, I left... Um... I left Disney by choice, um, and when people thought I was crazy, this was before kind of the downfall of 2D animation, and it's not like I had a crystal ball or anything, but I just had a, after Mulan, and, and I went on to doing a little bit of animation on a Fantasia continued kind of thing, um, um, it was based on a Lion King song, I'm drawing a blank on the name of the short, um, it was the one with the kites and a Lebo M song, anyway. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't um, remember myself, but I do. Uh, I think what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It, it did get, you know, it got put in front of a live action movie. I think when it finally was finished, and nobody really saw it, which is too bad because it was a fun little piece. Anyway, <laughs> I, I left Disney, got out of my contract early because I wanted to start my own animation company. But along the way of doing that, I also uh, was offered a position again with Rob Minkoff, who is now the director over at Sony, and he was the director on Stuart Little Two. He had just done Stuart Little One. And now he was working on Stuart Little 2, and he asked me to come on as the animation supervisor. And this was an exciting new opportunity. It wasn't directing, um, which I think a lot of people thought, oh, why didn't you go right into directing after directing Mulan? But I saw this as a new opportunity because I'd never done CG animation, and I still hadn't at that point, but I was asked to be the animation supervisor in charge of the Sony animation crew on that. And a lot of them were 2D animators that had just switched over to CG animation, and we're doing, you know, um, we're really kind of finding their way uh, with the technology. But more than that, it was a great opportunity to bring character animation in a bigger way to a live action studio for the most part. And uh, and I think we did that. We actually won a Visual Effects Society Award for Best Character Animation that year. So I was really proud of that and had a great time doing that. And that was all while I was my second job was building my studio that I wanted to go into, which I did for seven years. And again, uh, being a man of faith and um, a Christian, it was a faith-based uh, studio that we did a project that went out into kind of up against VeggieTales at the time, if you remember VeggieTales, the Christian yeah. market, good morals and values. And we did a faith-based project ourselves. But then it was also right when the uh, right after 9-11 when the economy collapsed and then the housing market collapsed. And I went through a lot of dark times there, but... You know, my faith and my family, um, we stuck together and, we, and, and that that's what kept me going. Um, <clears throat> and since then, I've gotten into, I've been, an, I've become an independent director, producer, animator for hire. I've done all kinds of things, um, but, you know, worked on Mary Poppins Returns. I was on the animation crew for that. Um, uh, I recently finished a, a film a couple years ago that now is going to be released on Netflix this summer called Animal Crackers. I co-directed that. Um, I've been an executive producer on projects with China and New Zealand. There's a film called Mosley that came out this last year that I executive produced. So I've really enjoyed. Um, now my my career largely is is not about Disney per se, but just about finding interesting projects and kind of doing what I want which is where I had hoped, even while I was at Disney, I was always motivated by what's the project. Not that it has to be Disney, not that it has to be, um, you know, a certain character or whatever mythology or story, but 
is it a project that I, I could really get behind that I really love? And at the time in the 90s, it was every project they were doing at Disney was the thing. That was the best thing that you could be working on in the whole industry. Everybody wanted to be working on those Disney projects, and they just had some great projects going on. I, it didn't necessarily go that way forever at Disney. So when I left, I think it was a good time to leave and start my own thing and, and look outside of the doors of Disney because Disney was struggling with finding their voice again. They had lost their voice. And now, you know, now obviously and since Frozen and even before Frozen, they, they found that voice again and they're, they're resonating and they're doing spectacular again. But um, for me, it was going outside of Disney has been great creative launch for me and um i I get to be more of a a leader in the independent crowd so i've enjoyed that yeah it's amazing um and it's nice to have that flexibility and sort of be that animator for hire and and have these other projects that that can come up um and one of the projects that you did start which is not so much a i guess an animation project but it's tied to it in some ways you and your brother deciding to start to the bankoff brothers animation podcast um yeah what was sort of the um the inspiration to start your own show well it was it was early on when podcasts were just starting to come out i mean this was we started probably a good i don't know five or six years ago now and it you know podcasts were really on the rise people were, were doing them and it sent it seemed like something that oh anybody could do a podcast which is pretty much true anybody yeah, it is and, and, most, <laughs> and a lot of people do most people have a podcast they're like oh yeah i do a podcast on the side. um and um but you know for us tom and i used to talk all the time at disney we've always been like miles and miles apart but we we talk via the phone all the time and we mostly we don't talk about our family so much we talk about animation because that's our passion so we're always calling each other and hey did you hear this and oh over at sony they're doing this and i just heard and i just talked to an old friend and they were telling me this and this it was kind of gossipy about the animation industry and it was you know, also, you know, oh, did you see this? It was so phenomenal. Oh, there's a new trailer out for this and that. And it looks great. Oh, my gosh. And we were, you know, we realized that all these conversations, if we recorded them, if we put a podcast together, even if it was just he and I spewing on about the animation industry, that that could be fun, at least fun for us. We didn't we didn't know if there would actually be an audience there. Um, and what grew out of the first episode was this feeling of, oh, OK, this is fun. And, you know, I like yeah, we're, we're talking about what we love and we know something about. So it seems to work on that level. And then we just decided, kind of like I did with my book, I didn't want my, my book, Directing for Animation, to be just about my voice. But so I interviewed, you know, like eight other, you know, professional um, uh, directors to get their voice. And, and I interviewed them for my book. That's what the podcast became, too, was like, well, we know all these people. We're friends with a lot of these people, directors, producers animators story people you name it let's let's not make it about us why don't we start interviewing people and um so episode two was our interview with uh it's funny i just had aaron blaze on last week and um we were reminiscing he's like i think i was i think i was your your second guest on the (laughs) podcast i was in episode two of your podcast and i and we said yeah yeah you were actually our you were actually our very first guest. You were in episode two, but episode one was just Tom and I talking. Yeah. And episode two was our first interview with Aaron Blaze. But since then, it's been Glenn Keane and Andreas Deja. And I mean, name drop, name drop, kind of Pixar directors, producers, everybody. We've done 145 episodes now. And um, and it's still going strong. And we still love it. We don't, 
you know, it's it's a labor of love. It's something Tom and I. It's one of the things I'm most proud of. I, that's the weird thing. I've, yeah, I've done all these things, and yet I look at the podcast as being something that Tom and I wholly created, and I'm really proud of it because of how it's touched people. We hear from fans, you know, through the years, and um, you know, students particularly that say. I got into animation or I fell in love with animation because of your podcast or I've been inspired by your podcast or I love animation now more than I ever did because of your podcast. And it's stuff like that, that, that really makes it worthwhile. Cause it's, it's a side project that gives us really nothing financially. <laughs> and yet, uh, you know, um, I know. <laughs> I totally you, know <laughs> you totally know, Matt. And, but you do, you got to do it because you love it and because you feel like, there's an audience out there that needs it. So in my way, and in my way of thinking, it's, it is fun for us. We wouldn't do it if it wasn't fun, but we also feel like we, we owe it to our fans and to the, to the next generation. Yeah. I, I, I totally understand what, what it's like hosting it. Right. It's not a, uh, it's not a get rich scheme, uh, get rich quick no. scheme, to, a scheme to be in podcasting, but it is a, a labor of love. Like you said, for sure. Um, and it's in addition to teaching students through the podcast, you also formally teach students. Um, yeah. So what has, how did that come about and what's that been like to actually pay it forward and teach the future animators? Well, it, it started with the podcast. And again, it's funny how things build off each other, but yeah. um, I had so much fun doing the podcast and feeling like I'm communicating and, and, you know, really trying to kind of educate people on what, what the the 90s at Disney was like or the history of animation or or what it is to be an animator and how to get into it we you know we talk a lot about those kind of things that are more instructional in a lot of ways inspiring but also instructional educational and it made me really think like I maybe I do maybe I would enjoy actually teaching and get in front of in front of a class and you know I feel like I'm I'm already taking a step in that with the podcast. So I, I looked into it and sure enough, there was a university, a Christian college, Azusa Pacific university. It was right at the time that they needed and wanted to build an animation program. And they gave me what I wanted in that. I, I like to build things, you know, it's the entrepreneur and myself and my brother has this too. Um, and they said, we, we want you to build this program. And from scratch it doesn't exist it wasn't like i was coming into cal arts or any of these other schools and i had opportunities at those other schools and i turned it down because i wanted to be part of growing the program and making it from the beginning and azusa represented that for me i was able to come in and create the program based on my time at cal arts based on my 30 years experience in the animation industry i feel like i've built a program a four-year degree program that is really unique in the animation industry right now. And I'm having fun doing it. I'm only in year two of the program right now. Um, got some phenomenal students that I'm really proud of. They're doing, uh, just, they're gonna be the game changers in the animation, uh, animation industry. And I'm so proud of them already. And they're just now starting to get out there. Yeah, it's uh, it's very rewarding to teach. Um, and, do you do uh, that, you teach? I have taught before. I, I, it's not been a while, but it's totally side side thing. I actually was um, ended up teaching for the SAT and the ACT um, for standardized oh, wow. testing, and uh, 
it was especially teaching. It's, I think it's amazing to be able to teach, and I would love to one day teach college students because they know what they want to accomplish in life, and they have that yeah. tenacity and focus. With high school students, I enjoyed giving them that tenacity and focus yeah. and helping them to yeah. narrow down what they might want to do. Um, in addition to teaching, obviously, the the specifics of, of strategy and, t- and test taking that uh, mm-hmm. I think are applicable to any sort of exam beyond these two, but totally separate from from Disney, of course. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I, I, I like to think that in some way I teach through this podcast, at least by bringing yeah. on people like yourself who can offer advice and wisdom. Um, and speaking of which, one of the pieces of, of advice I did want to ask was in regards to those who are listening who do want to aspire to become animators, which sure is a question you get a lot. Um, you know, in addition to listening to your podcast or reading your book, which I'm certainly going to suggest <laughs> everybody does, what are some of the uh, pieces of advice you could offer? either high school students or earlier or even later um, who might want to aspire to become animators for Disney or any other company? Well, I mean, first and foremost, I do have a lot of people, you're right, I do have a lot of uh, fans that ask me, oh, they say, I I, I grew up with Disney. Uh, That's my dream. I want to be a Disney animator. And I ask them, well, what are you doing? Are you actually drawing? (laughs) You know, (laughs) because a lot of them have this, this feeling of it's their passion and desire to be there is somehow going to make that happen. And it's not, um, that's the, that's the least common denominator you need to be a a Disney animator is this love of Disney because trust me, like I said, at the end of the day, it's a job and you have to have skill sets and abilities and talents to be able to be there. And it doesn't, what doesn't matter is if you love being there, (laughs) they're still going to pay you and you're still going to do a good job and all that. Even if you're like, well, I could take it or leave it yeah. or whatever. And I never really watched very many Disney films. You know, that's the part that doesn't really matter is that you're a fanboy right. um, or fangirl. Um, what does matter is, are you willing to, do you understand um, what the, the level is that you're aspiring for? Can you judge where you're at right now and say, I need to do this amount of work or this is where I need to put my focus so that I can get there? And oftentimes it starts with drawing. Do you draw every day? You know, let's go to the basics. Do you, are you willing to actually take out a sketchbook and draw every day? And that's what I recommend first and foremost, is that people draw and continue to draw. You will get better by doing the drawing. And then take classes. Yes, fine education. There's a lot of great programs out there. It's totally different time than when I was and my brother were coming up. CalArts was like the only university in, in all of the United States that was teaching animation. <laughs> there wasn't any other choices. Now there's a ton of choices and there's really not, you know, this one is so much better than the other. There are, you know, this one's so much more expensive than the other, but you can, if you're tenacious, you can find education online for free all the way to, I can pay for a brick and mortar school that will take me in and I'll be able to really mentor closely with somebody from the animation industry. And that might be the way you need to go, but it really depends on, are you a self motivator? You know, um, are you somebody that can, if you are, then you might not need a brick and mortar school because there's great online places to go now too for education. But you know, what I don't understand is when people come to me and they're totally clueless. And I think you, when Tom and I came up, there was libraries and nothing else. We didn't yeah. have the internet. We had no way. We had to like search out information and talk to people and make phone calls and things like that just to understand 
what what things might now everything is out there there's no reason that somebody should come and be clueless and say you know how do i get into disney it's like there's so many steps before that question should even occur to you you know the first one should be like how do i make myself a better artist how do i you know uh, that should be where you're starting you know there's so many different things that should be already you should have researched you should have knowledge about do you even know how animation is is made i mean there's and there's videos on that online that's so easy to find these days but you know realize that it is a job and it is a skill set and it takes you know a lifetime to achieve i'm still growing and learning as an animator as an artist I still think I suck most of the time. You know, I'm still trying to achieve a level that's in my mind out there that I'm still trying to meet. And um, and I think it's important for people when they're first starting to hear that too. And it's intimidating to hear that, I'm sure. But um, know that you're a good artist is always growing and always seeking better and better. And ultimately, that's the kind of artist that they're going to hire at a studio like Disney. Yeah, it's really great advice. I think even if there are, obviously, Disney fans listening, even Walt felt that way, that there was not, a, he ne- never reached perfection. It was always striving yeah. for something better. And yeah. definitely the most successful people do that. Um, so that's that's really great advice. Uh, in addition to the podcast and the book, um, where else can people go to follow you or to, um, or I guess my, another way to ask it is what else do you have going on that you would uh, like to plug for those who are listening? Yeah, I mean, I'm on Instagram and uh, I'm quite active on there trying to post new artwork and sketches and things like that. And so um, you can find me on Instagram at Pumbagai, P-U-M-B-A-A. There's two A's in Pumba, Pumbagai. And then I'm Guy one on Twitter. Um, Tom and I have a Facebook page for the podcast called the Bancroft Brothers Animation Podcast Facebook page. So you can find us there, too. So there's a lot of ways to communicate with me through social media and also a lot of ways to see what I'm up to. Um, but, yeah, I'm I'm also I talked about this in the last podcast, so I guess I, I can say it here. Yeah, Um I'm not just a teacher, but I also want to stay very involved with the animation industry, not only through the podcast, but also professionally. So I'm actually animating on Warner Brothers' new Space Jam 2 right now. I can't say anything more about it, really, but... um, That is awesome. You would assume that it has 2D animation, since I'm a 2D animator. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I'm working on uh, Space Jam 2, and that's been a lot of fun. Um, So I'm always... You know, both Tom and I, we always have a lot of pans in the fire. Um, I'm also looking at directing a new independent uh, animated film. It'll probably be CG. Don't get, don't want to get anybody's hopes up. Um, but <laughs> I'm also very bullish about the future of 2D animation right now. I think that's really looking up a lot of great opportunities through Netflix. Um, and there's a lot of creators that are pushing for 2D animated features in a big way. So it's an exciting time. And um, I'm just... I'm out there teaching, podcasting, animating, producing, directing, all the above on a constant basis. Well, I love how involved you are. And uh, just to make it very easy for everybody, again, I'll put all the links into the show notes so you can find it Uh, easily and and, uh, be able to find Tony's book and podcast and uh, social media pages and beyond. I will be looking forward to Space Jam 2 because I grew up on that movie too. So that's (laughs) that's Uh, something to look forward to. That's great. 
Um, but Tony, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to share these stories and uh, all this wisdom and advice. And uh, just thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Thanks, Matt. It was good talking to you too. And animate from the heart. Yep. <laughs> animate from the heart. That's something we say at the end of the podcast. <laughs> Take care, Matt. close out episode 73 of the Imagineer podcast. I want to give a very special thank you once again to Tony for lending his time to the Imagineer podcast and sharing all these incredible stories about what it was like to work on all these films at Disney and beyond. As I mentioned in the episode, I would encourage you to check out his book, Directing for Animation, Everything You Didn't Learn in Art School. You can find the link to that book in the show notes below, and be sure to subscribe to Tony and Tom Bancroft's podcast called the Bancroft Brothers Animation Podcast. I include a link to that in the show notes below as well. And be sure to follow Tony on Instagram and on Twitter and Facebook, all of which I include the links to, you guessed it, in the show notes below. But I, of course, want to turn this conversation over to you to hear which of Tony's movies do you think has had the greatest impact on your childhood or even your adulthood. You can send me your answers and feedback as always, in so many different ways, by reaching out to me on social media, on Facebook or Instagram at Imagineer Podcast, or on TikTok or LinkedIn at Imagineer Podcast. You can also follow me and reach out to me on Twitter at Imagineer News, so feel free to share your answers in a post or in your story on Facebook or Instagram or in a direct message on any of those channels. You can also send me an email at ImagineerPodcast at gmail.com. And if you would like to converse not just with me, but with other members of the Imagineer podcast community about this topic and all other things Disney related, you can join our Facebook group, which is the Imagination, also called the Imagineer podcast Disney fan community. If you type that into Facebook, it will probably show up for you. Or you can go to the Imagineer podcast Facebook page and click on the groups tab and that will lead you over to the Imagination. If you don't already subscribe to the show, be sure to hit that subscribe button. Whether you're listening in Apple Podcasts, in the Spotify app, in Stitcher, in Podbean, in Google Podcasts, or any other podcast app. Hitting the subscribe button, make sure you are the first to know when new podcast episodes become available. And if you haven't taken the time yet to rate and review the show, be sure to take uh, five seconds to rate the show. 30 to 60 seconds to write a review. It does so much to help this podcast community continue to grow. We're at over 300 five-star reviews, and I want to thank all of you who continue to rate and review the show and have left such uh, positive and kind notes about this podcast. I certainly do appreciate it. Of course, one of the best things you could do for Imagine Your Podcast is simply to share it, whether you share this episode or any other episode of the show, or in fact, any of our social media posts. If you share to your social media pages, or if you share by just 
talking about it with your friends and family, anyone else who would be interested in the Imagineer podcast. It does so much to help this community continue to grow. Thanks as always to all of you who continue to share the podcast. If you'd like to take your love of Imagineer podcast to the next level, look into patreon.com slash Imagineer podcast to learn more about the Imagineer Society. Essentially, it's Patreon membership that goes to help to support the show financially, and in return, you get perks and benefits and rewards for helping to support the show. I believe that anybody, no matter how much you can give, deserves some sort of content in return. So even if you donate just a dollar a month, think about that's $12 a year, you still get exclusive perks and rewards for doing that as course you go up the ladder and contribute more you get even more perks and rewards associated with that um, thanks as always to all of our imagineer society members for helping to support the show uh, not only through your emotional support um, and by sharing the podcast by also supporting the show financially and be sure to check out our partners. First, check out The Kingdom Insider to learn more about all things Disney. Christy covers a wide range of Disney topics. I trust her when she comes to sharing news about Disney. Uh, she doesn't spread rumors that aren't true, which is one of the things I always appreciate in a news channel, but has hard facts to share about Disney and some incredible tips about traveling to all Disney destinations. So be sure to check her out at thekingdominsider.com and The Kingdom Insider on on all social media channels and also look into our partner Academy Travel. They are a diamond earmarked industry, which is one of the top agencies that Disney recognizes for their level of service. They've been helping to plan Disney vacations and vacations in general for a quarter century, about 25 years, and do it with an incredible level of service. And not only do they help you to plan your vacation, but they do it all at no additional cost to you. In fact, in many cases, they can help you to save money. So you can click on any of the links in the show notes below to request a free quote, no obligation. They can help you to plan your next vacation to Disneyland, Walt Disney World, Disney Cruise Line, Adventures by Disney, or any other destination around the world. And last but not least, I want to encourage you, as always, to go after your dreams, no matter what they are. Put in the effort. Even Tony talked about it today. What are you doing today to go after your dreams? Make that dream a reality, whatever it is, by taking those steps today to accomplish your goals. And remember, as always, that quote from Horizons. If you can dream it, you can do it. Thanks so much for listening to the show, and we'll see you again in a future episode of the Imagineer Podcast. Are you nuts? You're talking about a lion. Lions eat guys like a...